Last week, we were talking about by whose authority Jesus did the things he did. Remember, it was the passage about a prophet is never welcomed in his hometown. It was also the reading about when you find yourself unwelcome, just move on. Shake the dust from your sandals. Well, Mark continues this week laying out some of the politics and conditions that existed in Galilee at the time of Jesus' ministry. Mark immerses us in the politics and the lives and the conditions surrounding rulers named Herod. Yes, there were two. And in the case today, we are in the time of Herod Antipas, or simply Herod, who was appointed by his father, Herod the Great, who ruled for nearly 40 years, dying in 4 BCE. As you may recall, Jesus was born when Herod the Great was still alive. So this tells us that our calendar is most likely off by four years, which is one of the reasons why I never worried about the millennium or even the Mayan calendar, because we're already in 2016. So none of that stuff was going to bother us. It was already gone. Herod the Great's reign reads like a movie of intrigue, politics, violence, wars, executions, plots of assassination, and even the execution of his beloved wife, Miriam. Later, he would also condemn their two sons, Alexander and Aretobulus, who never forgave their father for executing their mother. When the sons were discovered to have plans to avenge her death by poisoning their father, Herod the Great had them tried and put to death. And those are the details of just what he did to his family. And those are just the details of what he did to his family. Think of what he did to his enemies. On his deathbed, Herod the Great, and with the Romans' blessing, anointed Herod Antipas, or just Herod, by marriage to his, he was a son by marriage to a Samaritan woman by the name of Malthace. Herod was made a tetrarch, one of the three rulers of the area that was formerly the empire of Herod the Great. And his particular area was made up of Galilee and Berea. Now this appointed son, Herod Antipas, this is the Herod who first married Aretas, the daughter of the neighboring king of Nabathea. He divorced her so that he could marry his niece, Herodias, who was at the time married to Herod's brother, another uncle of hers. And together, her, um, Herodias and Herod's brother had a daughter named Salome. So that's how Salome gets into the picture here. Now this was pretty problematic for Herod for a lot of reasons. First, he was divorcing a politically arranged marriage with a neighboring nation king. And second, by law, before Herod could marry Herodias, she had to divorce her husband, that is, his brother, her uncle. The niece got around. And included in all of this are the Romans who controlled all the territory and who enjoyed prosperous relationships with both Herods, including the son, and they were willing to help him out in any way that they could to make this happen. What Herod wanted, Herod got because it kept the relationships with the Romans calm and everybody was happy. And it followed in the tradition of Herod the Great, the father who had the kind of relationship with the Romans where he received the title of friend of the Romans and friend of Caesar. You didn't get that because you were a nice guy. Now, Herod comes into this picture of the New Testament or the Second Testament 
basically for two reasons. Because John the Baptist criticized Herod for divorcing to marry his brother's wife. It was against tradition in the Jewish tradition. And John the Baptist spoke up to him and said, you can't do this. And then, of course, Herod is also involved later because he, along with Pontius Pilate, in the Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect of Judea for the Romans, and Herod, who was the magistrate or the ruler of Galilee, were together at the time of Jesus' trial, and the two of them questioned and ridiculed Jesus. So his involvement in these two, quote-unquote, small ways continue to change the course of history today in the actions that they took. And in literary style, Mark begins today with sort of a movie-type trick, a flashback. He says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, no, it's Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, nope, this is John whom I beheaded, he has been raised. And so what follows in the reading that Gary read for us this morning, thank you, uh, is a flashback of what happened and how John was beheaded. But it's already, it's already taken place. So I want to focus a few more minutes this morning on that first paragraph. It's where I want to stay. And rather than going into the story of beheading John, I'm more interested in Herod's beliefs today, that this Jesus he was hearing about, this Jesus who came home to Galilee in last week's reading, this Jesus who was becoming known well enough to reach Herod's ears, so much so that Herod was sure that this Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead, and what would eventually follow, that this Jesus was coming to get him. John the Baptist was going to have his revenge in this Jesus. Now, you don't have to live in this kind of fear, in some ways superstition, unless you have something to fear. And if you're in the business of kingdom or kingdom building and political survival, suspicion and even superstitions can go a long way in holding back the tide. And if you are in the business of holding back the tide, the tide of your enemies, the tide of what's to come, at some level you know you just know that that tide eventually is going to come crashing down on you. Eventually it's going to win. You just hope that this is not the day. And in whatever way you can, you try to carve out another day holding back the forces that eventually will have their way. This is what Herod, I'm sure, thought in some ways about this power that John the Baptist had that now was back. So the question becomes, I think for us today, is which are we, or who are we? Are we the ones who hold back the tide of Christianity, if you like, faithfulness, justice, love? Or are we the ones that are part of the relentless tide that will crest and fall, breaking old resistance and boundaries, clearing away the debris as it recedes, revealing a new place, a clean slate before us with the chance to start anew. Which are we? I believe there's a deep yearning inside of every one of us, every one of us, for equality, fairness, 
justice, and yes, love. And there is also a deep yearning alongside that for security, safety, protecting ourselves, reaching some point where we can relax and enjoy our comfort. Even if others haven't worked as hard, weren't as fortunate, or fell upon bad luck, made bad choices, etc., still, we made it. And deep inside of us, maybe, like Herod, seeing the resurrection of John the Baptist and the stories of Jesus, we are sometimes caught in the resurrection around us, the rising of justice and equality in the moments we question our own privileged status. When we are confronted with someone or some group of people being oppressed by conditions or agencies or other situations. For many of us, we live in this tension. We get it. Our eyes are wide open. We struggle to enter into our own bed at night, still knowing that someone is sleeping out on the street somewhere. The goodness of John the Baptist rises to our consciousness in the forms of the goodness of righteousness and justice. And then we have choices, decisions to make about how we're going to enter that tension and how we are going to live into equality, justice, and gospel from a position that is privileged. We become presented with choices about our own comfort, our own control, our own interests, and those things that we know were we to do them may just upset all of that. We become a Herod and a Pontius Pilate weighing our own interests against the meaningness or the messiness rather of dealing with others and their injustices because it is a messy business. We weigh one person against a group of people, against the larger interests of church, state, religion. Nah, it's just Jesus. It's just one joke. Crucify him. It's why prophets are so troublesome to ruling powers. Prophets see things differently. They don't see the interests of church, state, or nation as greater than the injustices of the few. In fact, the prophets expect the church and the state and the nation to address the injustices, to use their power, their influence, their resources to resolve the injustices, even if that means in the process a few people get away with it. How many times, and you can just, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking policy, how many times have we heard the argument lately we have to impose something because seven people are abusing part of it, so let's wipe it out for hundreds of thousands or the many others who use it. Prophets say, you got it backwards, folks. And the real reason probably, which you can tell by now, is that prophets are so troublesome and that Jesus was so troublesome and John the Baptist was so troublesome and Frank Rocco was so troublesome. The real reason is that they challenge the ruling authorities and they do not acquiesce simply because they are told to be quiet, told not to perform miracles on the Sabbath, told they are unclean, unwelcome, or any other unness. And they stir things up. 
Take a look at the Arab uprisings. You don't think there were a few prophets over there? The struggles in the Sudan, the African nations and the draconian responses to the prophets who call out for equality in many different ways. Think of all of those who raise their voices for justice and then just look at the response they get in return. And you know what? Here's the truth. The closer the prophets get, the advocates get, to changing the unjust situation or condition, the more intense the response. The more they fight back the oppressors, the more fearful they become of change, the more they will do everything they can to get one more day holding back the tide until it's too late. The resurrection of Jesus, if you want to think of it in this way, the resurrection of justice and love in our lives, suddenly comes crashing down on all of these oppressive things and everything becomes new. That's the good news. And the even better news is that it all happens out of love. The love for one another, including those holding back the waves. We're not out there executing people to get our way. The love for one another, including those holding back the waves. And when the time comes, we'll do our best to be there extending our hand to those being washed away in the waves. So they too, along with ourselves, can walk together in the new way that is ahead. For Herod, well, he only knew one way or the other. Either you kill the revolution or the revolution kills you. And many today see the Bible in this way as a weapon, as a weapon to subdue others rather than as an invitation to love others. You know, when I think about the big global picture, and I think probably most of us would agree because we're sitting here this morning, that we believe that love has and will continue to overcome and to build to a crest and to eventually be unable to be held back. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. And perhaps one day it will reach all places where injustice and oppression and marginalization and such things reside. I see the New Testament as being about a path that makes the domination of power or control or discrimination, bigotry or fear, it makes all of those things impotent. And that to be flicked away when facing the love of God in our lives and the power that love has. Loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our minds, and then loving one another as ourselves. No wonder it has those who oppose such things concerned about the raising of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the great teachers, many we know. No wonder it has them concerned about holding that tide back, because they should be concerned. And we should be sure that they know, to the best degree that we can, that when that tide comes crashing down, we can avoid a lot of it just by working together, the violence, the pain, and the suffering. But until we get to that point, and when that tide comes crashing down, 
that we will be there with the hand of love extended to them. Because ultimately, it's that love that lets them know who we are and whose we are. Amen? Amen.